Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I am one of the pastors here, Church of the Redeemer. Uh, it's great to uh, be up here this morning. It's fun to uh, to be able to send Wade out uh, and to be sitting by my sons and and dreaming about the day. I mean, I, if it was if it was up to me, I would make it mandatory uh, in Christian schooling or Christian you know parenting that we send our kids away for a year before they graduate college just so they can get a taste of the world and figure out that the world is a much bigger place than the United States of America and the city in which they live because I just think that's so so great so work so Wade I'm I am um, thrilled and excited for you and look forward to hearing about your trip when you get back thanks for letting us sharing that with you we're in the middle of a series uh, going through the book of Matthew and we're in our third week in Matthew 10 and I have to say uh, it's been very hard this passage of scripture and I'm kind of excited that next week we'll be in Matthew 11 and no longer Matthew 10, because as we've gotten further, just kind of sink deeper and deeper and deeper, and today is no different. So we need to read some passages, some verses at the end of Matthew 10 that are in many ways shocking and disturbing and scary and perplexing, and yet they're in red, which means they were spoken by Jesus himself, and so we need to take them seriously. So if you have a Bible and you want to join me in reading, we're going to be in Matthew 10, beginning in verse 34. To the end of the chapter, if you don't, don't worry about it. It's printed for you in your worship folder. It's also on the screen behind me. Again, Jesus giving instructions to the twelve as he sends them out to do the work that he's been doing. Let's read. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. For whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is the disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is God's word. Now, what we see here is that Jesus has a mission. And what it means to be a Christian is that you become a disciple, you follow him. In other words, you take up his mission. You begin to do the things that he's doing, both proclamation and demonstration. This is what we've been talking about. You take up his authority. In other words, there's a power that begins to work in your life and through you into the lives of others. But we said last week it also means that you take up his sufferings, that just as Jesus' work ultimately led him to a cross, there's a cross that all Christians have to bear also that we find here. Now... We have to talk about that for one more week. So I want to, if you weren't here last week, I want to remind you of John Piper's advice. And John Piper, a friend of ours, approached John Piper one day and asked him, you know, this suffering stuff that you're constantly talking about, you know, what am, how, do I, how do I make sense of that? What do I do? And, and John Piper, who's a pastor in Minneapolis and pretty well-known in Christian evangelical circles, he said, you know, what you need to do is just, just live a life of love. Commit yourself to living a life of love and you won't have to go in search of suffering, it'll find you. <laughs> uh, you know, and, what, and what we see here, if we live compassionately towards our families, or towards our neighbors, or towards the harassed and the helpless in our city, 
uh, then we should expect a life of suffering. We will have to go without. It's going to affect our standard of living. We will be less free because every act of love, as we said, is a chance to die. Every act of love is a chance to die. So Jesus' mission, we see here, is a mission of love. And you know the verses in John 3, For God so loved the world, and you could probably say them with me, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in the verse 17, Jesus says, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that so the world might be saved through him. So what John is teaching us is that Jesus came to love. He came to save, and it meant a cross. But here... In these verses, he says, I come to bring a sword. I come to set a man against his father, and so on. And so what we have to wrestle with is, what does that, what does all that Jesus says here, what does that have to do with love, with the mission of love? And so we've got to learn some things about love today. Uh, Three things from this passage that we're going to see about love. Three things that we need to learn. First is that love is a confrontation. Second, that love is cross-bearing. And that third, love requires faith. So just those three things. Just as we talk about love and what it means to be called out by Jesus to love. So we need to see the definition, the methodology, and the source. Love is confrontation. Love is cross-bearing. And ultimately, love requires faith. So those three are the three points in your outline. So let's follow along together, okay? First, just this. That love is confrontation. You see, Jesus says, He's come not to bring peace, but a sword. You see that in verse 34? I mean, and, I, and I read that and I thought, you know, man, that just doesn't sound like Jesus. I mean, isn't Jesus all about tolerance and love and, and these ki- kinds of things? I mean, that's the, at least that's the way he's been cast. And I, Mark Driscoll, who's a pastor in Seattle, he, he just, in a way that I'm not capable of, so I need to quote him because he's just a different personality than me, but he puts it this way. He says, uh, our perplexion about this comes from this. He says, some people want to recast Jesus as a limp-wrist hippie in a dress with lots of product in his hair who drank decaf and made pithy zen statements about life while shopping for the perfect pair of shoes. Right? He goes on to say, but in Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make somebody bleed. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) That's right. And he goes on to say, he says, now that's a guy I can worship. He says, I can't worship the hippie diaper halo Jesus because I can't worship a guy I can beat up. And most of us, you know, for whatever reason, we envision, when we think of Jesus, we envision only the meek and mild Jesus who had a really soft voice and a positive attitude and walked around handing out lollipops to everybody for being little, good little boys and girls. But in Revelation 19, it's why, you know, it's why I included this. There, you know, in our minds, there's this contrast between the God of the Old Testament who is fierce and wrathful and judgmental, and then Jesus who embodies love, and uh, he's, just, he's just sweet, and he's, you know, the guy that every girl wants to be, you know, be with because he's so sensitive. And, you know, but in Revelation 19, I included it as a call to worship because in those verses, Jesus is pictured as a warrior king with eyes of fire, dressed in bloody battle clothes, riding out into the earth to judge and to make war. Now, how does that square with John three sixteen? Love and a sword. You know, love 
and confrontation, love and conflict. They don't usually go together. And a lot of the reasons we misunderstand Jesus is we misunderstand love. We have a poor concept of love in our culture. I thought, you know, what adjectives would you use to describe love? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, you know, it's patient. Love is kind. Love is humble. All these things. But when you think of love, you normally don't think of words like fierce or confrontational. You don't think of a sword because we mainly think of love as affirmation. At least that's how we've been trained in our culture. Love means yes. If you love me, you yes me. And Jesus says no. Sometimes love means no. Love is not just affirmation, it's also confrontation. And Jesus says, I've come to bring a sword. I've come to confront. I've come to judge and make war. And he knows that that to love us, he has to confront us. He has to judge us. He has to come making war because sin has so blinded us from the truth. It's so corrupted our, our sense of right and wrong and good and bad and beautiful and ugly that we're doomed. That you know We're so fiercely committed to our independence. We're destroying ourselves. And we all know it's not loving to sit and watch somebody just ruin their life and hurt other people and do nothing. And say nothing. It's not love. So Jesus came to critique us. He came to confront us. And that's what the cross is. The cross is a critique. It stands right there. It's a critique. And when Jesus says that he comes to bring a sword, he means he's declaring war on our sin. And he's subduing our hearts to himself. That in our sin, we've declared war against him. And he's come to subdue us. There's a story that I've told before about about the famed British military leader, Admiral Nelson, who on one occasion defeated an admiral, who in the ceremony where where the, the the enemy admiral was surrendering, the man strode across the deck to meet Lord Nelson, and with a sword at his side, the defeated admiral put his hand out, and looked to him to, to surrender, you know, to shake his hand. And Lord Nelson looked at the man and did not immediately shake his hand. And instead he nodded toward the sword and he said, Your sword first, please, and then your hand. And Jesus is a king. He's the king. And he's come to bring a sword to judge and make war so that he can subdue our hearts to himself. He wants us to lay down our sword. Because that's the most loving thing he could do. You see, love, Jesus has come to bring a sword. Love is affirmation. But it's also confrontation. But then there's a second thing that really comes out in Jesus' sword metaphor that I think is helpful to us. And that is that a sword divides. In other words, the result of Jesus' coming is not peace, but conflict. A sword, if you, you know, I don't know if anybody saw the Robin Hood movie this weekend. I haven't seen it yet. But, you know, Braveheart or think, you know, whatever, you know, any of those kind of gross movies, a sword you know, can sever a leg in two. It can cut somebody's, you know, it can chop a head off, right? Uh, in other words, that's exactly, Jesus is saying that's what's going to happen. He, his coming will set a man against a father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, though I'm not in, as impressed with that one because that one's easy to predict, right? <laughs> I mean, come on. Jesus is saying... His coming takes families and he makes them enemies. This is what happens. He splits families in two. And so, he says, love's not just confrontation. We've also got to see that love is cross-bearing. That's the methodology. That's how you do it. You have to take up a cross. And so remember, as he sends us out to love, he sends us out to judge. 
He sends us out to make war against the sin and the idolatries that are holding people captive to evil and keeping them from the life that they've been created for. He sends us out to love with a sword. He sends us out to critique, to side with him against the people in our lives. Love is confrontation. And that goes for families too. I mean, following Jesus, it introduces all kinds of commitments and values and beliefs that are in direct confrontation with established family patterns and values. I mean, just to give you one example, not necessarily from my own life. I wish I could see. I'm trying not to smile. (laughs) Just a little, I'm not too old yet, but just a little experience. Most families value family. You with me? I mean, commitment to the family is the most important thing in one's life. It's, tr- it's even more true of other cultures than it is in our, in our own. Uh, and it would have been definitely true of Jesus' day. So then Jesus comes along and says, No, your commitment to me is more important than your commitment to your family. Can I? Families typically don't like that. They don't like to be second. <laughs> they like to be first. And Jesus is just warning us. He's saying it's going to be hard. There's going to be conflict. I mean, this is what my coming does. At times, you're going to be hated and persecuted. And he, warned, he warns us. He says, your parents... Look, at, look there in those verses. In verse, after verse 34 and verse 35 and 36. He says, your parents and your children are going to tempt you and try to dissuade you from following him and you have to resist them. So if you're young and you're in the room, and man, I hesitate to even say this, but... But it's kind of there, and so I have to. If you're young, Jesus is saying there are things, there are going to be things that he asks you to do that your parents are not going to understand, or maybe even be frightened of, or not supportive of. And Jesus is saying you can't let your love for them get in the way of your obedience to him. Don't hold the mission of God at bay in the name of loving your parents when those two collide with one another. Their approval is not more important than the mission. That's what Jesus is saying. But if you're a parent, man, if you're a parent, there are things Jesus is going to ask you to do that your kids will hate (laughs) or think are stupid or boring. There may be even things that he asks you to do that put your kids in danger. And you can't let your love for them get in the way of your obedience. Don't hold the mission of God at bay in the name of loving your children. You know, when those two things collide, their happiness... You know, their happiness is not more important than the mission. I mean, and, and do you know how tempted we are to do that? I mean, I, I saw an all-time new one um, yet a couple days ago. We went to Disney for a couple days, and we we're in line at Space Mountain. And, you know, the lines can get long. And so I literally saw a mom with an iPhone playing a video, walking like this through the line so her child could watch the video. I was thinking, wow. Man, my mom and dad never did that for me. I mean, you know, that's commitment. No, that's, that's foolishness. I mean, that's living in complete bondage to the fact that your child may, you know, may, I mean, who cares if he screams? It's Space Mountain. You can't hear it anyway, right? We can't, you know, we cannot live shackled to the happiness of our children because there's a mission. And so the summary is just this. You have to take up your cross. You have to be willing to bear a cross. That's what Jesus says. That's, that's what a life of love looks like. That's what it feels like. If you really want to know what it feels like to love, it feels like a cross. And Jesus says, if you look there, 
Look at verse 35, 36, and then 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That word, worthy, that that idea there is the word Greek word axios, which means weight. In, In other places in the scripture, Jesus says you cannot. It's a word dunamis. It means you don't have the power, you won't have the strength, you won't be able to. You won't have the energy. And the same idea is here. Jesus says, unless you're willing to live with the disapproval of other people, even your family, and unless you're willing to... Terry, I'm just about ready. Unless you're willing to embrace a resume of death and take up your cross, Jesus says you won't have the weight. You won't have what it takes. You won't possess the fortitude and the moral fiber that is required of you in the mission that he sends you out to do. And so it would... The idea behind this... Is something like this. Terry, are we ready for this? This is the first time we've tried to do this. Um, it feels pretty stable. Yeah. And it's a lot better than yesterday. It's, it's a training room. Okay. Right. Yeah. 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 Kind of dislocation. Here yeah, we have to pop it back in. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. You wouldn't make it in pro football. I love that. That is so great. <laughs> I don't know how that's going to come through on the tape, but I just, that is so stinking hilarious to me. You know the guys over there warming up like, all oh, I'm hanging out in the training room. No, you wouldn't make it in pro football. And Jesus is saying, it's, it's, I mean, it's, very, it's a very apt illustration. Jesus is saying, if you, can't, if you can't talk your heart into the reality that probably what's waiting for you is a cross, if you can't love him more then the other people in your life, you, you're not ready for discipleship. That's what he's saying. It's going to take you by surprise. It's going to ask something of you that you don't have. I mean, you, you might pass out like that guy did. I mean, that was just a little finger they had. You know, what about a broken leg? Or, you know, who knows what happens. So here's what we have to make sense of. There's only one way for you to faithfully follow Jesus. <laughs> Just one thing. You have to lose your life. That's all. You see that? Verse 30, 39. Luke, in a very similar passage in Luke 14, says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So you have to hate your life. You have to lose your life. But what does that mean? You see, Jesus is warning us that family can easily become your life. Family. Family can become the thing you're living for. The thing you go to bed at night thinking about and wake up in the morning energized towards. Your kids can become your life. But so can a job or some material possession or the approval of other people. It's what you're really living for. And the, the reason you get up in the morning is to have people think you're great. To make it your life. You see, the word for life here is the the word psyche. And the psyche refers to the psychological structure of a person that especially deals with the motivational core or force of that person's life. In in Greek mythology, psyche was a beautiful maiden that was considered so beautiful that she 
could not be married to mortal men. She was reserved for the gods because her be- she was just so utterly beautiful. And so what Jesus is saying is, is there's something in your life of ultimate value and beauty to you. There's something that you've made your life that is the thing you're motivated by in everything you do. And Jesus says, whatever's become your life, you have to lose it. You have to walk away from it. As long as something other than Jesus is your life, you'll follow him only to a point. And so if money and material possessions are your life, then you'll follow him until he tells you to give away your money, and then you'll choose to keep your money. But you'll lose him. Or if you make your kids your life, you'll follow him until your kids start to complain. And then you're done. So we have to ask the question, then, is Jesus just a killjoy? I mean, is this big goal in our lives to just make us as miserable as possible, to take away all the things we love and send us to Africa, to live in mud huts and eat insects and plant roots and make us miserable? Right? At least Wade gets to go to Prague, which is a cool place. Right? Suffering for Jesus. No, he's trying to lead us to abundant life. He says if we hold on to that thing that is our life, then eventually we'll lose it. But if we walk away from it and look to him for life, we'll get it back. See, the irony is you make your kids your life, and here's what will happen. You'll crush them, or you'll live in constant fear and regret because your kids can't give you life. If you make money your life, you'll spend it recklessly, and so you'll lose it. Or, you know, you won't enjoy it because you'll be looking to it for life, and it can't give life. Only Jesus can give life. And if you make Jesus your life, then you can really parent and love your kids well. And if you make... Jesus your life, then you can be generous with your money and enjoy it as a blessing from God. See, there's only one way to find the kind of life we've been created for, real life. Real and lasting joy and purpose. And that is that we have to die. We have to die. You have to walk away from what you're living for. There's a life on the other side of death that Jesus is calling us to. He's not a killjoy. The command to take up your cross and follow is not morose or masochistic. It's loving. Jesus is loving us. He's calling us to walk away from the very things that will kill us and enslave us and drain us of joy and purpose. Uh, An illustration of this, which is a long illustration, but I think worthy of our time. Uh, In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia in the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, There's a character in the book, his name is Eustace. And Eustace is the kind of character you love to hate. Uh, Really, he's a spoiled brat. Uh, He's whiny and selfish and spoiled and always complaining. And on one of the islands that they stop on their voyage, uh, he comes across a, a, a dying dragon in a cave full of treasure. And when he's sure the dragon is dead, he goes into the cave and begins to load his pockets with the treasure. And eventually what happens is he falls asleep on the mound of gold treasure. And when he wakes up, he finds that he has turned into a dragon himself. Now later in the story, he recounts what happens next to Edmund, one of the other children. And he tells that in that moment of his greatest panic, uh, he saw a lion, Aslan, if you're familiar with the story, coming toward him. Who, uh, and the lion asked him to follow him. And so reluctantly, he's scared death. Um, But he goes with the lion, and they end up at a bubbling well. And then I'm just going to read his account. So bear with me while while I read this. As he's telling Edmund what happens, he said, Eustace says, The water in the well was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg. He had put a... A, ring, a bracelet around his, or an anklet around his leg when he was a boy, and then when he turned into a dragon, it was cutting off the circulation and causing him great pain. 
He said, but the lion told me I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sorts of things and snakes cast off their skin. Oh, of course, I thought that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. It was the most lovely feeling. And so I started to go down into the water for my bath. He goes on, but just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's right. I said, it only means I had another smaller suit on underneath the first one. And I'll have to get it out of it too. So I scratched and tore again and and this underskin peeled off beautifully. And out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well... Exactly the same thing happened again, and I thought to myself, Oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe my legs, so I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. Then the lion said, But I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. Now listen to this. He says, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. And the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done to myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been, and then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that very much, for I was very tender underneath, now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. What C.S. Lewis is trying to say, and I think what Jesus is trying to lead us to here in this passage, is that following him is going to feel like you're dying because he's calling you to a cross. He's calling you to walk away from the things that you're looking to for life. He's calling you to take up your cross and follow him. And it's going to feel like you're being ripped to pieces. It's going to hurt. And that's how you know you're getting really close to real obedience. It starts to hurt. It's going to feel like your skin is being peeled off your body. And then you know, then you know that he's beginning to teach you to love. You see, what C.S. Lewis is describing is what we mean when we talk about repentance and faith. That you enter the kingdom through repentance and faith. That's what Matthew said to us. Define Life, in other words, you have to stop looking for life in earthly things. You have to walk away. You have to repent. And you have to turn to Jesus and trust him to give you what you've been looking for from all those other things. And that's faith. And this is what it means to be a Christian. It means we're constantly asking in our lives, what is it that I've turned into my life? What am I looking to apart from Jesus to give me life? And then to turn to that thing, whether it's your kids or whether it's money or whether it's a material possession or whether it's a job, whatever it might be, you turn to that thing and you say, you are not my life. Christ is my life. And to let Jesus take his sword and cut that cancer out of you and walk away from it and give your heart to him and worship him. 
You see, repentance and faith, that's what, that's what this is. That's what we're being called to here. That's what Eustace was experiencing as Jesus, you know, as Aslan ripped, you know, into his very core of his being. Repentance and faith, what happens is on the other side of it, it brings us into an intimate relationship with Jesus. When we believe in him, we are mysteriously and spiritually united to him. And theologians call this doctrine union with Christ. And I just want to say it this way, it's a theological conviction that has huge practical and missiological implications. So let me just unpack that and then we're done. So theologically, union with Christ. We read in Romans 6 just a few weeks ago that in our baptism, Jesus says we were buried with him in our baptism. In other words, baptism is a sign and a seal of our participation in Jesus' death. And if your faith is in Jesus, then what the Bible says is you died when he died. And you were raised when he was raised. And Paul says in Ephesians 2 that even now we are seated with him in the heavenly places. So what goes for him goes for us. His life is our life. His death is our death. His righteousness is our righteousness. But this has huge, huge practical missiological implications. And you see this in the last part of this passage where Jesus says in verse 40, whoever receives you, receives me. If you're a Christian, Jesus is now living his life out through you. He's living his mission out through you. The Spirit is working in your life, producing the dying, resurrection life of Christ in you. What Jesus is teaching us, and what all of the Bible would teach us, is that there's an intimate spiritual connection that happens in salvation that results in a shared mission. So much so that Jesus can say, when they receive you, they receive me. We're that connected. What the Bible would teach is that we can't claim the righteousness of Christ apart from bearing the cross of Christ. The theological and the missiological aspect of our union with Christ are inseparable. So on the one hand, it means we're hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3.3. 3. We took part in his death and his resurrection and his ascension, but it's the other way around also. We're in him, but he's in us. And so not only do we participate in his life, but he comes into ours. He begins to live through us. He begins to animate our lives towards obedience, and that's how Christianity works. It's not cross-avoidance, nor is it bearing our cross with grim faces and sheer determination. It's faith and repentance. It's letting him rip our lives open to restore us. And that's where the energy to love comes from. That's the source. See, point number three. That's where the energy and the power to really love and to take our crosses come from. Faith and repentance open the floodgate, so to speak, so that the power of God can come into your life and form the dying life of Christ in you. That's why love requires faith. Because every act of love is a death. It's a cross. It's just too hard to do on your own, only the love of God energizing your life can motivate you to take up your cross. And that's exactly what happens when we enter into a lifestyle of repentance and faith. When we look at the things that we've made our life and we say, you're not my life. Jesus is my life. And we climb upon the cross that he's set for us and we follow him. That's where life is. That's where you find the life you've been looking for on the other side of the death he calls you to. And so let me just finish with a quote from a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who's written much about this sort of thing, who was a theologian and pastor in Germany during the time of Hitler, who eventually lost his life for the faith. He just sums all of this up this way. He says, as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves 
to Christ in union with his death, we give ourselves over to death. Thus it begins, listen to this phrase, he says, The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. The cross is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In fact, every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts, but we do not want to die, and therefore Jesus Christ and his call are necessary to our death as well as our life. The call to discipleship means both death and life. Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us eyes to see uh, with faith that um, your intrusion into our lives while we are tempted to resent it and to hate you for it and and to, to call you nosy and to ask you to leave us alone that you're intruding for our good, you're intruding to love us, you've come to bring a sword and to subdue us to yourself and to take that sword and to plunge it into our hearts and to rip us open so that you can bring out of that death a new life, Uh, the life that we really long to live, the life that we've been made for, the kind of life that we're looking for and all those other things. Forgive us that we have made um, and sought for life and money and sought for life in our family, sought for life and the approval of other people, sought for life and religion and in a good name. Um, Jesus, you are the only one that can give life. And so give us faith to believe that even as you call us to take our cross and follow you, you're really calling us to abundant life. Uh, but that's, man, that's a work of your spirit. And so we ask that you would come and do that. Come and call us uh, so that we might sing, I will arise and go with Jesus even if it means going to my own death. Thank you for your cross and the salvation that has come to us through the cross that you bore. Now may we be faithful to take a cross and follow after you for the sake of your glory and for the good of the people that we love and our city that you called us to, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All the great battlefields of history uh, tell the story of men or of armies who have come against one another armed with swords to devour and to kill because of their hatred or their animosity or their, uh, or their lust for power or wealth or whatever it might be. But there is one who comes against you with a sword, but he is not motivated by hatred or uh, anger or lust for power. He's motivated by love, and it is to us. Uh, the choice, either to lay down the sword with which we have armed ourselves, and if so, um, if, if we're willing to do that, then he comes, and he might pierce us, but it will be to cut out cancer from our lives and to do us good. If we do not, he will come, and with his sword, he will vanquish us. Uh, and so it is in the contemplation of that that these words of the benediction come. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, if you have laid down your sword, and if you have taken up a cross and you're following after him, then as hard as that might be, as, as painful as that death may feel, um, what, what motivates you, the food for your soul as you seek to be obedient to him in that, comes from the affirmation that is yours from the Father because of the work of Christ on your behalf. And so hear that affirmation in the words of this benediction then. So if your faith is in Jesus Christ, receive this benediction then, the words of the Father over your life. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.